good companies meet your expectations, but it's the truly great companies that defy your expectations and leave you saying, wow, which one do you want to be? Welcome to Working the Wow, where we believe providing an exceptional client experience is just as important as delivering a quality service or product. Join attorney and entrepreneur Judge Shaw on your journey from simply doing a good job to making them say wow. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Judge Shaw. My guest with me today is Ben Gideon. Ben, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Ben is with the personal injury law firm of Gideon Asin in Portland and Bangor, Maine, right? I'm a long way from home right now, almost 3,000 miles. Well, we're, um, we're airing from California here. And before heading more about the great work you do for Mainers and Downeasters, you actually have your own podcast, Elevate, right? I do. Tell me about it. So about a year and a half ago, I made a fairly big life transition. I left a law firm where I'd been a partner and owner and been there for 17 years. And I started a new firm, Gideon Ason. At the same time, I started a new podcast with a friend and co-host, Rahul Ravaputi, who's uh, based out of here in Los Angeles. So we thought it'd make a nice team with one person on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. And it's been really great. I'm having a really fun time doing it. I saw that from Elevate, it was um, a focus on trial skills, lawyering. Is that the background of the podcast? You know, really, my uh, concept for the podcast was to do something a little bit different because there are some, a bunch of trial lawyer and trial skills podcasts. We wanted to do that, but in addition to that, tap into kind of the emotional and psychological dimension of what it's like to be a trial lawyer, including its impact on people's personal lives and lifestyle and dealing kind of with the stress and other elements that go along with, with that practice. And, and trying to get a little bit more personal with the guests, having them dig a little bit deeper than mm -hmm. just, this is how you do a direct exam, this is how you do a cross-examination. So that was kind of the concept of it. We like to say it's where personal growth meets trial law. And I think it's fit a nice niche because I don't think anything exactly like it had existed before. We've had a lot of nice feedback from people that listen that like that, uh, that concept. And you could check out Elevate on anywhere you listen to your podcast, um, iTunes, Spotify, Podcast Addict, things of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. It's been really gratifying to see the show grow. I think now if you actually just type in trial lawyer to either Spotify or to Apple iTunes, we're the number one trial lawyer podcast in the country. That's super cool. Now, your wife, Sarah, a former two-term speaker of Maine House of Representatives, was the 2020 Democratic nominee for the U.S. Senate in Maine. What is it like to be the first husband in politics? Well, that's an interesting question. No one's ever asked it quite that way before. Unfortunately, I'm not no longer a first husband because my wife lost that campaign against Susan Collins for the U.S. Senate, despite being ahead in every poll for about 10 months and looking like she was going to be elected in that race. It's been fantastic, honestly, because my wife is just really terrific at politics. She's got a, a great way of connecting with people. And she's one of these people that does it for the right reasons. She wants to make a difference in people's lives. And sometimes when you're in a narrower career, and we help people in our practice, but sort of one at a time uh, with our clients, 
you like to feel connected to the bigger world where you can do more to help more mm. people. And it, it felt nice to be connected to that with my wife doing that, that good work. So I like the role for the most part, you know, I was kind of si the silent partner in the political world. She, you know, she was out in front on that. Not me. Really cool. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, but for you, you grew up in Maine. You pretty much wanted to be a lawyer all your life, right? You, you go to Cornell University uh, in, in Ithaca. Uh, you end up going to Boston University and with exceptional grades, transfer into Yale, where you earned your law degree there. And then from Yale, uh, you go on to one of the most prestigious, largest law firms, at least in the country. And ultimately, you spend a large portion of your career, as you pointed out, 17 years at another law firm, which was Maine's, I, I think at some point, maybe still is, largest personal injury law firm in Maine. Why'd you leave and start your own firm? You know, you only live once. And I always dreamed of having my own law firm with my name over the door and being able to design a firm exactly how I wanted it and a firm that could fulfill my vision for what a firm would be. I loved the firm that I was at for 17 years. You know, I was an owner of the firm. I was on the executive committee helping to manage the firm for a long time. So I did have a lot of control over it. But what you realize is when you're making decisions by large committees with lots of people who have to have a voice, it's, it is difficult to kind of carry out a personal vision. And so at some point, and also just for the need to, to make a change to keep my life challenging and interesting, uh, I decided to make the move. And it's been fantastic. It's uh, been one of the best decisions I've ever made other than marrying Sarah and, and having my three children. You know, um, uh, on my podcast, a lot of times we talk about delivering exceptional client service. Is there a difference in what you have created at your firm along with your partner, as opposed to where you come from? I think so. I think we are, I mean, at my old firm, we greatly valued client service, and that was definitely a priority at all times. But there can be a lack of quality control when you start to get, we had 17 or 18 lawyers and probably 40 to 50 support staff. And the quality is inconsistent when you get to that number of people. Um, you know, in a smaller market like Maine, where you don't necessarily attract only the best people to particularly the law jobs. So I think there is some inconsistency. In our firm, one of the great aspects of my current firm is there's, we right now have three lawyers and for every client, they're going to be serviced by a combination of just the three of us. And we work together on every case. So I know what quality client service and the work that's being done on each individual client case in a way I didn't in my old firm. You know, what happens is, from my experience, is you fly at 35,000 feet at a larger firm, and there's just so many different layers. You may have middle management at 15,000 feet, your front line, 5,000, and then, you know, all your others on the tarmac. And it's harder and harder in those leadership to get down on that tarmac where it's really happening. And the benefit um, at Gideon Azen is you're on their tarmac, right? You're down there. And so on the front end, your clients are benefiting from that because they're getting the Ben Gideon way, 
right? I call it the judge show way at the firm. In order to scale and grow, I need to teach everybody how the way I would speak to a client, doing a call, an intake, things of that nature. And for you and your team, you're right there. Yeah, 100%. And that's been one of the most gratifying aspects of building this new firm is that when you're at a larger firm, I mean, you referenced a different firm I was at, but I was at a firm called Latham & Watkins, Mm -hmm. which at the time I was there probably had about a thousand partners spread over 17 countries. I think 4,000 lawyers now or something. Right. I mean, it's one of the largest firms in the world. And there are people in your own building that you will never meet and you will never know what their names are. And when you're a lawyer there, everything is taken care of for you. You know, your IT is done for you. All of the file uh, document storage systems, litigation systems, every, you know, all the support staff are managed by mid-level managers, as you're pointing out. But when you build a new firm from the ground up, you have to get down into the trenches and figure out how all of that stuff works because I've never had to do any of that in my career. Right. But it's actually been great to do that because you see how little things make a huge difference. And one of the things we've done from the outset is we've built out, we call it our operations manual, but we write down every policy about how we're going to do each individual thing in our firm. And then everybody ultimately has to review it and sign off on it. And over time, we revise it and improve it and change it. And you, you really see how little things like how does the intake process work? Right. You know, how do you triage phone calls in what manner? And literally, what does the person who picks up the phone say when they're talking to a client? And we happen to have amazing staff and they really care about these things. You know, the other day, my um, one of our uh, staff started scheduling. So we, our, our practices, if we mostly do medical malpractice, we do some other types of cases, but that's our bread and butter. And those cases are complicated and patients come to you with a whole story they want to tell you and you have to sort through, mm. is that a case or not? It can be difficult sometimes right. just to know. And, and costly if you make the mistake. I often tell people you make your money in this business on the cases you turn down. <laughs> Because you, it, once you accept the case, you've bought really a blank check of, ex, of great expense. But so our practice has been for a year and a half now, every client who comes to our firm for a potential medical malpractice case will speak to a lawyer. And sometimes those calls are 30, 45 minutes, an hour, and we're turning the case down. And, but the practice is always that we will call that person at a designated time and the lawyer is expected to make their call on time. So the person knows when to expect us. Well, one of our staff people started asking the clients to call us at the time instead of us calling the client. And one of the other staff people said, no, that's not the way we do it. That's not what our policy manual says. You're supposed to schedule the call for the lawyer to make the call. That way we can guarantee the call will get made. And she wrote to me and she said, you know, this has been happening. And um, I thought that made sense. But one of the things she pointed out was when we opened this firm, we said we were going to have the best customer service. And our slogan is, let us be your champion. Right. And it would be inconsistent with our business model and our value for us to do that. It's a small thing, right? But if the client has to call you, about 25% of the time, they're not going to call you. So the call will never happen. Yeah. Right. And 
they're going to miss out on talking to us. Whereas when we make the call, we connect with them probably 90 plus percent of the time. Yeah. So it's just a small detail, but I, we, I've learned that the, these little details really matter. I think so. I, uh, one of our core values at our firm is be a knight in shining armor. And we try to say to our team, if the client is waiting for you to call, right, and expecting it, or you're just going to hope that the client calls you, are you really being their knight in shining armor, right? Are you really working it? And what it sounds like is, um, and, I, and I can appreciate one of the joys of that, is that you have your DNA, right, all over every system and process. You know, at our firm, we also do, when we get a new client to come in, we give them a preference sheet, and it'll say, what do you want to drink? Coffee. How do you like the coffee? Soda, water, ice, no ice. And they fill out that form, and then we enter that in our case management system. So the next time the client comes back, the ambassador of our first impression, our reception team, comes and says, uh, Jimmy, you wanted a diet soda, no ice. Here you go. And they say, how does he remember that, right? We do that intentionally. That's actually an important thing to do. I think we're going to adopt that strategy. You now, I was sitting I'll, at the I'll bar last night, and there was a guy, six seats down at the bar, and the bartender, and then uh, his girlfriend or wife joined him at the bar, and the bartender came walking over and said, uh, so that'll be... Uh, sparkling something. And she said, how do you remember right. that? I said, of course I remember. She had been there once, right. you know, one other time, but you can see what an impact that made on somebody. Right. Active listening while they, 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 they remember it. And it's those little things, right? They get lost to those big behemoth law firms, but you have the ability to control that and have those, what, what I like to call small touches. And next time they come in, coffee, cream, one sweet and low. How did you know that? Well, we have a system for that. Speaking of being incredibly competitive and insanely smart, which uh, you and your partner, right? Your firm really stands on this principle about champion, which to me is not a good representation. It's not average representation. It's like top notch, right? You think be a champion you got to play like a champion. You got to win like a champion. For example, in 2014, right, you achieved a record setting $22.5 million verdict for a utility line worker who got injured. How does that case highlight the type of work or the type of effort, that champion attitude that you have at the firm? Yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, I, I love the term champion because it can be used as an adjective, uh, a noun, or a verb, right? You can champion somebody else's cause, which is what we do as a lawyer. Right. You can be a champion, which is what your clients want. They want to be the champion. They want to be the hero of the story, and they want to win their case. So they can be the champion, and you can be a champion something, right? So I just thought that that really encapsulates what we're trying to do. Uh, that case that I tried in 2014, that was really an epic saga for me. It kind of tracked a big part of my growth as a lawyer because the case went on so long. Mm. I think it went on, by the time I tried it, I'd been working it for over five years. And it started out, so I, I represented this um, utility line worker who um, lived in northern Vermont, a small town up by the Canadian border. And he went out one day, he was uh, called to uh, open a, a switch on a transmission line, which are the big high voltage power lines. And if you've ever driven 
down the road and you've seen these like substations where there's barbed wire around and maybe a gate and a bunch of electrical equipment inside. So that's where he went. He went to a substation, went inside, went to throw the switch, which involved uh, manually operating a lever. And when he did that, the power at the top of the switch, way up by the power line, came down the switch into the handle and through his body and essentially blew off both of his legs. So he became a double amputee. You know, from that point on, he was 36 years old. We're actually exactly the same age. Um, so it was, you know, I could really relate to him and his wife and his young family. So this case went on, like I said, for five years. We originally sued six parties, I think, and settled with five of the six and then ended up trying a case against the one remaining party. At that time, they were a Fortune 500 company. So they, you know, had all the money in the world for the defense. They brought in the, they parachuted in a Boston big time trial guy to try the case. And it really felt like um, kind of a David and Goliath mm, right. uh, thing. Um, and, but I worked really hard on it. We, we, we invested a lot of time and a lot of money into it. And yeah, at the end of the case, we got this really incredible result, which was, um, completely deserved by our client and, uh, you know, really been a, a, a life changer for him. And it's just been great to see how he and his family have thrived since then. I'm still in touch. And, and whenever I'm in the Burlington, Vermont area, I try to look him up and see him. Last time I was there, we had dinner and it's just really gratifying to see, you know, what, what that can uh, do to help improve somebody's life. So it's the greatest reward of what we do. It's absolutely. Yeah. And it couldn't have happened to a better, I mean, he was just so deserving. It's, he's really, he and his wife are amazing people. They were the people, for example, whenever there was a um, downed, whenever there was like a storm outage and the line workers had to work all night, like a 24 hour shift, they were the ones who always held the spaghetti suppers at their house or the, you know, the breakfast at their house. And over the years, even after Mike lost his legs, Every year they hosted at least one and sometimes multiple exchange students at their home. They've adopted, they adopted a, a little girl who had disabilities who was very young when I started the case and has now recently graduated from high school. I mean, they're just amazing, amazing. people on all levels. So just great to see when good things happen to good people. Yeah, when you can champion that cause and bring yeah. it home. So I would refer to you as insanely smart. Cornell, although I know that you... Uh, at one point went on for hockey that didn't work out. You sort of like uh, flunked out in academics and here you end up graduating at Yale Law School. It's such a story, unbelievable. But you refer to your partner as insanely smart. Tell me about him. How'd you, how'd you guys connect? Yeah, it's interesting. I, his father, uh, Michael Ason, so my partner is named Taylor. His father, Michael, is a prominent partner in a law firm in Maine. And so I've known him for a number of years and actually he was very helpful to my wife in, in her campaign and um, I didn't know Taylor much but I knew of him and at some point I was um, sitting in my office at my old law firm and I got a call from this guy who um, was working at a, a plaintiff's uh, class action firm in Brooklyn and told me he had g graduated from Yale Law School and done a federal clerkship and asked me if, uh, you know, wanted to get together and have coffee or something with him when he was in town. And so I did that. 
and ultimately was able to recruit him to come to my old law firm. And he was there and been there a couple of years as an associate before we left to start Gideon Asin. So yeah, he's a, he's a very smart guy, as that resume would, would kind of suggest. He's an exceptionally good writer, very good analytical thinker. But I, I, I really like the fact that you know if he's working on a case, I have complete confidence that it's going to be d- done at a very high level and, and, and done right. And if we have to submit a brief and he's writing it, I know it'll be a, a good quality work product. There's nothing that dr- drives me crazier than seeing like crappy work product right. out of lawyers. I just don't like it. I don't like, you know, bad or shoddy writing. So I, I know I have confidence in him that he'll be able to work to that level, which our clients obviously deserve. And um, it, it takes that stress away from having to worry about, you know, what my partner's up to. Well, I mean, it goes back to the fact that, you know, when your DNA, when you've built this thing to have somebody who shares that vision, right? And those core values and knows that he's going to deliver the same product you are. Uh, it's a good combination. It's a deadly combination. Yeah, it's been good. You know, and the other part about it is we, we, we actually just talked to somebody we may hire or may not, but uh, was interested in our firm. And it's another guy who just came off of a, a federal clerkship and once you have a couple, a critical mass of people with that background, it can be easier to recruit people because it's, you sort of give a permission structure for people that wouldn't normally be doing plaintiff's tort law. And I think sometimes our profession gets a, a bad rap, but I think I love trial lawyers, plaintiff's trial lawyers. They're my favorite people. Because I think there's just something real about what we do that's so different from other aspects of the law. Right. And I, I'm sad that there aren't more people that, you know, go to Harvard or Yale or places like that that think that that's a noble and viable uh, option for them. So I, I think it, it'll be nice to sort of see if we can up the, the level of, of the plaintiff's bar a little bit in our state. Yeah, you know, um, here we are at, at an event together, and I don't, I don't think the community realizes how close the plaintiff's bar is, right? Um, it's competitive in every state and with each other and everybody, some people have billboards and commercials right next to each other, but then yet they're sharing tips and help. And I mean, we're fighting against the same bully. I think we have to share because if we don't, the institutional forces on the other side are so powerful that, that we're all going to be disadvantaged. Yeah. But if we band together and share, we're all better off for it. And I think you kind of learn that over time. It's not like if your colleague down the road gets a big case and a big verdict, that doesn't hurt you. That actually helps you because it raises the the bar for the next case. Now, all of a sudden, the case that they wanted to lowball and say it could never be worth more than X, they've been proven wrong. It is worth more than X, Right. So, you know, it's kind of one of these rising tide lifts all boats, right, I think. Right. I, I do think there's an element in the plaintiff's bar, I think we have to be real about it, that doesn't behave that way. And there are some bottom feeders in this business, and there are some unethical and bad actors in this business. Of course, that's probably true of any business, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that maybe because the barriers to entry are lower, that there's not as much of a filter. 
right? I mean, it's very hard to get, if you want a job at Sullivan and Cromwell or Boyce and Schiller, you got to have pretty good credentials and background and certain pedigree. If you want to do plaintiff's work, you don't really need anything other than a shingle and a probably a law degree. Right. <laughs> you right, know, right hopefully a law right, degree right. in most cases. So there's a there's definitely a le- less of a of a of a filter there and so we do have a wider disparity of types of people, but I think at the upper level of the plaintiff's bar, they're the, some of the best most humble generous, kind people that I've met and smart yeah. and street smart too. I do too. I, I met, uh, there was a law firm. I, I've traveled the country visiting. I, I visit over 60 law firms now around the country. And one of them was doing this um, child car seat giveaway. And so families could go by and they would have the fire department. They worked with the police department and they would check the car seat. And if the car seat was the right car seat for the right age appropriate or, you know, they'd fix it and buckle it in. But if it wasn't, they would just give them a, a brand new car seat right then. And people would say, well, why is this firm giving away car seats? Doesn't that reduce the amount of cases that they may have for, you know, because they're reducing injuries? And the law firm's great response was, there's already enough injuries. There's already enough accidents. We should be doing, you know, part of our work, part of the champion of the cause is changing the conduct or the behavior that leads to these injuries. Yeah, I completely agree. And, um, you know, one thing we've been proud of is we participate in something called 1% per planet in our firm. So we've committed to give back 1% of our gross fee revenues. So it's not our, it's not our profits. It's our gross fees. And anybody who does this for a a living knows that there's a great disparity between those numbers. Sure. You're not giving away 1% of what goes in your pocket. It's, it's more than that. At right. Gross. right. So it's been great. I mean, we were, our, our first year last year, we were able to give away quite a bit of money, even though it was our first year, but we started strong. And it's just so nice to, we're developing relationships with all of these environmental nonprofits that we are able to fund through this. And then this coming year, it'll probably be double or maybe triple what we were able to give away last year. It's so it's really pretty cool. That's amazing. You're, now, your um, partner, his father was an attorney, but your father was an attorney too, wasn't he? I don't like to think of him as an attorney. He was a law professor, so he actually was a lawyer, but he never practiced law. And I, I, anybody who's seen the difference in some law, you know, there are law professors that practice law. My dad is a, is a true academic. So he loves the law and he's written many articles and likes thinking about it and teaching about it. But my dad wouldn't be able to argue his way out of a, a out of a you know speeding ticket. Yet it had to be some really academic or interesting kitchen table conversations about the law. How impressionable was that on you? It was enormously impressionable. I mean, yeah, we, my dad and I, our relationship until more recently, because he's older now and doesn't take as kindly to it. But our relationship for years was essentially based around arguing. We would argue about everything. So we'd argue about the law. We'd argue about politics. We'd argue basically about everything else to the point where a standard dinner table would be us arguing and my mother like standing up and storming off because she got frustrated by it. My two younger brothers basically just kind of melting away and trying to ignore us. So... Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I mean, my dad, um, he's, my dad is truly one of these 
high IQ people. Um, he he would do New York Times crossword puzzles in like five minutes. He's published his own crossword puzzle in the New York Times. Uh, when he was in college, he was chosen as one of a couple people to be on the college quiz bowl for the whole his for his school. So he's just real. He was a really smart guy and really academic. But I learned a lot from him. But you know, it's it's interesting as much as my dad was a law professor and I'm a lawyer. I think personality-wise, I take after my mother much more because she was an elementary school teacher, but she was really kind of a, I would say, a social activist type. She always got involved in causes to champion people in need. I mean, she does it still to this day. I mean, I remember probably 30 years ago, she went to learn how to teach English as a second language so she could help immigrant children coming into the community. This is before there were really many immigrants in our community. It was kind of on the front end of that. Right. But she just always did things like that. And she's very tenacious. And like, if she wants something, you better get the hell out of her way because it's going to happen, you know? And I think in terms of the skill set that's needed for the job of being a plaintiff's lawyer, that's a much more important skill set than any kind of like brain power. Yeah, I was thinking she's like <laughs> she's like the company mascot, right? She's like it's like that's what you're saying is exactly what the firm is about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's we kid ourselves sometimes, but the world of being a plaintiff's lawyer is not the most highly intellectual job most of the time. You know, the med mouse stuff sometimes engages the the brain in a way that uh, requires you to think think about things carefully and there's some in-depth thought, but but I don't think of our pursuit as really being intellectual or academic in that way. I think it's much more practical. Yeah. You know, I wanted to shift for a moment on the operation side and this operation manual. Um, something I was thinking about, about client service and customer services, whether you have thought to incorporate the behaviors that you want of your team, right? In that operations, like I will do this non-negotiable, we will update, we'll call, all calls get returned within 24 hours. Um, you know, something where it's like almost like the code of conduct for your team as you grow in that operations manual, because as you're, you say, you know, you pass it along and everybody signs off to say, okay, this is our systems as a process, how we're going to do things. But also have you, have you thought about building in that code of conduct that goes along with those things? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, we definitely have built in there, for instance, when when they're time sensitive things, such as if we get an intake, that that will be that we will respond within thirty minutes, either if we're texting someone or emailing, or you know, phone call within by the end of that day. Typically, things like if we do dictation and we have letters going out. I think we give them two, you know, there's two day window that that should go out unless there's some reason it can't. Right. So we do try to build that in there. You know, we're small enough now and I can manage people closely enough and see their conduct that probably don't, some of it is just a culture we've created. Right. One of my, my favorite parts about our culture is that we've instituted voluntary guided meditation every day. It's so amazing. That at, yeah, it's generally right around noon. So one of our paralegals, actually, before she became a paralegal, was trained in, she, she worked for a number of years as an acupuncturist, but she has a lot of training in um, Eastern medicine, and she 
is a certified yoga instructor. So we talked about meditation and I, I had been doing it for a number of years mm -hmm. to just try to manage my stress sure. level and yeah. all that. And we talked about instituting it and we, and I thought, oh, well, maybe, maybe I'll do it, but nobody else is going to be into that and they'll complain about it. And um, maybe we'll do it for it once or twice and then we'll never do it again. It is one of the most uh, popular things in our office. Virtually everybody does it almost every day. We do it for exactly 12 minutes because that's what my paralegal says the literature suggests is the minimum amount of time that has the maximum benefit. Mm -hmm. And she usually comes with a, a short, you know, game plan of um, this is going to be the lesson or the thought for the day. And then it's silent meditation after she introduces it for uh, 30 seconds or so. And in the summer we do it outside and in, on the lawn, which is really great. People love being outside. And it is like, having a reset button pushed in the middle of your day yeah. or taking a, yeah. you know, a shower and coming back, you feel so relaxed and like rejuvenated after that. I love that. Yeah. I love that. That, you know, the mindfulness, particularly with your team that brings out, you know, empathy, um, appreciation. You just, that, that's amazing. I think that's awesome. And, you know, going back to it, for instance, we call ours a social contract. And the social contract is built into our operations manual. So the social contract, we try to come up with ways in which we can help guide our team, our growing team. Instead of what we had found was do this in two minutes, this in four minutes, but processes kept changing. And then we realized, uh oh, we forgot to change something about that thing is two minutes. Now we wanted it one minute, whatever. And so instead of it, we say, you know, uh, you agree to act with a sense of urgency or you agree to earn your spot on your team, be accountable you know, um, learn from your mistakes, things of that nature. But, um, yeah, I well, mean, what's the size of your business? Uh, so now we have about, uh, 11 or 12 lawyers and, um, about 40, um, team. So, um, we, we need those kind of guides, right. Um, that let everybody know again, sort of as I start to get higher and higher in that elevation, right. In feet, and going farther and farther away from the tarmac to make sure that everybody understands how I would do it. And that's how actually it evolved to come, come up with the, the Judge Shaw way. And, um, you know, we, we're really very intentional about it. And I love what you said about the culture because culture in a, in a company, it exists in every company, right? And if you're not working on it, you have culture, but it's not probably the one you want. And when you're intentional about it, when you say, we're going to do this, mindfulness exercise and anybody can participate and everybody starts to participate. Talk about, you know, rising tide that, that it, the whole team benefits from that. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, um, it's such a learning curve for me because I've never run a business like this before. I mean, I've usually just had my head to the grindstone on the practice of the law side. So trying to learn this, it's also, it, it's great to connect with resources. I'm sure your podcast is one to help lawyers figure this stuff out because there aren't a lot of great manuals and they certainly don't t teach you anything. In, first of all, Yale Law School, they don't really teach you anything about the law even, but, but it, uh, they certainly don't teach you how to manage a law firm. So you know, I, I, I actually got most of my knowledge about that from listening to podcasts. 
and but at each stage you you run up against kind of a brick wall of okay i figured out that part of it so we're at the we have four staff and three lawyers and we may be on the brink of hiring another lawyer which would probably mean we need to hire another staff right but we're starting to transition from just very small where everybody knows exactly what everybody else is doing at all times to still small but a little bit less small right and and then also trying to think okay what is the what do we want to be you know i left a 17 lawyer firm partially thinking i don't want to recreate the overhead of a 17 lawyer firm i don't need that but now we're moving towards creating more overhead again you know but but there's that sweet spot where uh you're you're scaled right for the business you're in and the market you're in yeah. But just thinking through, okay, what is that sweet spot? Where do you know? Uh, where do we want to be? Do we want to be a ten lawyer firm? Do we want to be a twenty lawyer firm? Or do we are we content being a three or four lawyer right. firm? And how do you make that decision? Right. You know what I mean? So there's just and and you're it's just. I think it's organic and probably changes over time, right? Um, you know, I remember moving in one office and saying, "This is the most space I'll ever need," and that's you know three offices ago, right? Yeah, well, listen, I mean, here we are in, in sunny California, and when we get back to the East Coast, I encourage maybe we'll visit each other. You come and visit my firm, and we'll walk you through it, and you sit with our intake and sit with our operations, and, and then likewise, I'll, I'll come there, and I, I love visiting firms. Um, speaking of going there um, and outdoor activities, I know that you are a, um, I read uh, somewhere that you're fanatic about outdoor activities, right, canoeing and hiking and and biking and and, and 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 with Sarah and the three kids, right? I have never had the privilege of being in Maine and even your hometown of Freeport. Um, tell me, what, what makes Maine special? I love Maine. It's, it's just such an unspoiled, natural, beautiful, accessible place compared to so many other places in the world. I mean, one... Of the, the the best parts of it is that we don't have that many people, so you don't have to deal with things like traffic and the hassles of just being in any kind of big urban area. Like I, I love coming to LA. I love, I mean, I lived in New York City for a number of years when I worked at Latham. I love cities, but I can just drive to work every day without ever having to think about even the possibility that there'll be traffic, right? And I, I just think about how so many people spend their lives hours a day dealing with those kind of hassles. We don't have to deal with it. So, you know, Maine also has a great, so I, I live on the coast, so I'm able to do things like uh, fishing and swimming in the ocean and, um, and summertime activities. But then we also have great mountains. So we've got a, a ski house uh, in Maine too. So we can go there and go skiing in the wintertime. So it just got a it so much is accessible there, all within the within the state. Um, the one downside to it, which it is um, is definitely a, you know a factor and something I think about is, I mean it, it is a small, poor, out of the way state without a lot of opportunity. And actually, since COVID, we've seen a lot of the people moving into our state, driving up our home prices, are all people mm -hmm. from. Know, New York, New Jersey, uh, Massachusetts, who can still move to Maine and trade in their, you know, uh, small brownstone in New York City for a giant mansion on the water with a bunch of acres, um, which will probably be changing at some point. But um, 
But as but when you're building a business, it is very limiting because we have 1.3 million people in our state, and there's only a certain number of high value cases. And we have no industry really. I mean, a little bit, but we don't have major corporations building things or doing things in our state that lead to workplace yeah. injuries, explosions, the things that are kind of the bread and butter of plaintiff's lawyers in bigger cities. How would the um, good people of Maine, uh, the Downeasters, get in touch with you, Ben, in the event that they are injured and need a champion of champions? They can just send me an email. With, uh, my email address is bgideon, G-I-D-E-O-N, at Gideon Asen Law. Asen is A-S-E-N. Dot com. And the website for the firm? Uh, GideonAson.com. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was really fun. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. If you want some swag, please reach out to me at Judge Shaw Injury Law. Send me an email, listen to the podcast, but also um, definitely include a request for some swag and we'll send you some stuff out. Till next time. Thanks for coming. If this episode made you say, wow, please leave us a review or send this to someone that needs to hear it. Ready to start creating unforgettable wow moments for your customers? Then subscribe to Working the Wow in your favorite podcast app and join the conversation on social media at Working the Wow. If you have topic suggestions or questions, please email us at wow at workingthewow.com and be sure to include a mailing address where we can wow you with some swag.